Dotnet Rocks, episode 1082, with guests Ben Hall, Jeff French, and Enrico Campidolio. Recorded Thursday, December 4th, 2014. What an enthusiastic crowd. We're here in London at NDC. The N stands for new. Yes, because if it start, stood for Norwegian, that would be silly. Yeah, and uh, we recorded this about a month ago. Yeah, that more was or fun less. time. Yeah, we've had a... How was your Christmas? That was wonderful. How was yours? Happy New Year, by the way. Oh, thank you. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> Good time shifting. Absolutely. We're used to it. Uh, I'm Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. We're here for the next hour or so with an esteemed panel, uh, and we're talking about DevOps. Uh, but before we introduce them, we have this matter of uh, a little thing we call Better Know a Framework. So roll that crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Okay, well, it's interesting. Uh, we're recording this in the early December, and there's 15 days left on this Kickstarter Ooh, so you're going to announce the Kickstarter is going to be over by the time anybody hears it. Kickstarter is going to be over. But uh, for, hopefully maybe you can place uh, orders for products. Yeah, lots of cases they still have orders. In lots of cases they may extend it. What we'll is this see. product you're talking about? This product is Newzi, N-U-Z-I-I. Okay. And you can go to Newzi.com, N-U-Z-I-I.com. There's a link to the Kickstarter, of course, may or may not be there by now. But here's what it is. This is, uh, and the picture is very... Ominous. It's Uh-oh. this little device. It's like a little cylinder with a little blinky light on it, okay. and it supposedly does everything. Oh, yes. All right, check this out. All products are perfect that aren't shipping. Right. Newsy is a small device packed with an HD video camera and many sensors. Newsy controls many of your smart devices, makes your internet safer and more private. Hmm? Fodder for talking later, guys. Uh, increases the memory of all your gadgets. Okay. Okay. Receives and streams wireless audio, recognizes you and your family from fitness bands and smartphones, and monitors your home and protects you from intruders. It's a little cylinder. Okay. okay. It's a magic cylinder, it's a apparently. magic cylinder. They've raised a lot of money, though. Yeah. News, all right, and here's the details. It's a robust cloud platform that can extend the memory of all your devices with your own hard drives. No monthly fees. And the only limit is the capacity of your drive. Storage is not a problem for your phone anymore. Access, synchronize, and back up all of your files across devices. Instantly share your files with anyone. Stream your media. Does this sound like a security problem? I'm just <laughs> curious. All right, well, anyway. Uh, stream your media to any device, including TVs. Download anything you want remotely. Number two, Newsy is a safe gate to the internet that lets you create a secure wireless network with VPN and Tor. Right, Tor, Tor that encryption, yeah, for anonymity and privacy wherever you are. Uh, keep off intruders with firewall and malware protection. Block off ads while speeding up your internet. Uh, and three, Newsy is the mastermind of your smart devices. It comes with its own HD camera, motion, air quality, and temperature sensor. It's getting a little scary now. <coughs> Receives and plays audio wirelessly like Apple AirPlay or a Bluetooth speaker. 
recognizes you, your family, and friends by their fitness bands and smartphones, learns your routine activity, this is the weird one, learns your routine activities and how you control your devices and programs itself accordingly. Monitors your home constantly and notifies you for unexpected events. You can view the live camera feed with one click. Works with all major smart home appliances like Philips Hue, LifeX, Google Nest, Locketron, and much more. Creates smart recommendations by gathering data from multiple devices. Yeah, okay, so they're doing some encryption. They're doing a lot of things. And as of today, this recording, which again, December 3rd, I think it's today, right? Yep. Um, we're talking 139 bucks to get one of these things and an early bird kind of thing. But who, I, I don't know what the end result will be of that. But I just thought that was really interesting that these guys are going for such a wide array of stuff in one device connected to a cloud platform. But they're using Tor, you know. It's interesting. What do you think? I think every product's perfect before it ships. Yeah, I kind of thought you'd be cynical about it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a tall order. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. But it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, anyway, that's what I got. Cool. Newsy. All right, well, maybe, I'll have to take a look. Maybe we'll, it'll be a raging success, we'll have them on. Or maybe it'll be a raging failure, and we'll have them on. <laughs> either way, I'll make for an interesting Works show. either way. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 1056, the one we did with Brian Randall when we talked about Visual Studio Online. And, you know, considering we're talking DevOps today, yeah. think, you know, this is a part of Microsoft's DevOps play. And Jeff Mazaroff, who's commented a lot of shows, yeah. I'm pretty sure we're going to be sending him a hoodie this time around, yeah, absolutely. Uh, had this great comment, which I think was very appropriate for this panel. He said, uh, not to take the wind out of Microsoft sales, but it amazes me how many people don't know that bitbucket.org exists and has supported free private repos for quite some time now. Yeah. You can use Git or Mercurial or whatever your repos use to post there. I will say that GitHub is more polished than Bitbucket, though. I started with Bitbucket when I was trying to wrap my head around moving from centralized to distributed version control and didn't want to embarrass myself publicly while I was flailing around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and, and the whole TFS Online story, the part of the debate here is why is Microsoft making another uh, repository for code when there's already a bunch of good ones. Bitbucket right. and GitHub being two sure. very obvious examples, although clearly part of what they're doing is extending their tools to work with those ones as well. Mm. So, Jeff, uh, once again, thanks for the great comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And let me now introduce our panel, starting with the man on my left. Ben Hall is a startup founder and a polyglot programmer, developing uh, using combination of Node.js, JavaScript, Ruby, iOS, and C Sharp. It's Ben Hall. Peter Mounts has worked in developer teams, operations teams, and has been a generalist shipping software for Just Eat since 2010. He has automated systems, tests, servers, and in some cases himself, it's Peter Mounts. <laughs> Jeff French is an experienced developer with a passion for automation, software craftsmanship, and good craft beer. He has extensive experience in web and mobile application development, deployment, automation, and continuous delivery, it's Jeff French. And finally, Enrico Campidileo is an Italian programmer based in Sweden with a strong passion for quality and a mild OCD, with experience in both the Microsoft and Java camps, writing everything from console apps to large, 
distributed systems. It's Enrico Capadalia. <laughs> Welcome, guys. Uh, Richard's probably going to take most of the questions here because he is Mr. DevOps on this side of uh, .NET Rocks. So uh, I guess I will let you take the first question, Richard. This is a pretty broad area, and I've tried to find some folks here that have a variety of experiences. So it's interesting just to figure out where to start. And I hate to just dive into tools right away because it's a fun place to hang out, but I think you know, DevOps has more to do with cultural elements than anything else. I've got a talk coming up on Friday. I think, Peter, you've got one coming too, right? That's right. What's your talk coming up on Friday? So the, the title is um, Embracing DevOps at Just Eat, how we, how we make that work. So you're, the organization you're working for taking on those DevOps practices. Yeah, we've been doing that for about two years at this point, and it's, it's been a really good accelerant. Would you say that it was a development-driven process or an operations-driven process? It was a decision that the engineering team made collectively right. that we needed to accelerate the rate of change of delivering features. Um, we looked at, at the current state of our infrastructure, single data center, Snowflake servers. We weren't moving fast enough. So we took a decision to move to the AWS cloud. I'm going to give, give away too much of my talk, but yes. essentially what we did was we made a couple of decisions up front. Everything is a pull deployment, so there's no central authority telling each instance what to be. Each instance comes up in CloudFormation, and there's some, some metadata that CloudFormation knows about, tells the instances in the auto-scaling group what to, be, what to bootstrap themselves towards, and then the instances themselves go and pull stuff from S3, go and pull stuff from CloudFormation metadata to become a consumer web app server or to become an internal tools server. So it's a very much a composed model. Yeah. They assemble themselves in the metadata. So we, we went into the cloud both, both boots first. Uh, we didn't dip our toes. We, we, we made the commitment that we're, this is going to be automated. We're going to treat instances as disposable they're not going to hang around for more than a day or so. And that's what we ended up with. Our debugging in production is we, we now can shoot an instance in the head. And if the same problem happens again at that point, we'll dig into exactly what is the problem. Let's, let's try and look in logs. Let's try and look in, in monitoring. Right. So test, test one for every problem is reboot. Not reboot. Give us a new server. Right. Try it again. Just out yeah. of curiosity, what does Just Eat do? So we're an online takeaway provider. We're a, a central website, and we put menus for your local takeaways Got on it. our site. So it's a central place for the customer to go to. And is it UK-wide? Is it worldwide? How I think at this point we're in 14 different countries, Okay. largely in Europe. And then uh, there's Brazil operations, Canada, India and a few others that are non-Europe. Wow, okay, so it's customer, consumer-facing, yep. and what, highly scalable. Yep. Yeah. And constantly feeding other chunks of data into it, uh, which is all part of the cool part of this. And I really like this attitude that we're seeing more and more. And Ben, we talked about this on the other show we did with you, just talking about Docker, that there's this idea that instances are very temporary that you just sort of stand stuff up, you work with it for a while. If you're unhappy with it for any reason or you need to upgrade it, you don't upgrade it, you just make a new one, kill the old one. Uh, and I think Docker sort of 
a key technology in all of that. Yeah, definitely. Like the whole containerization approach is all about their destroyable instances. Right? Right. They're built to be very small, very lightweight, very self-contained, and so that you can spin them up in a new environment, or you can just spin them up and take them down and destroy them as you see fit. Well, we should tell everybody what Docker is, give them the elevator pitch. Yeah, true. So Docker is an abstraction on the top of Linux containers, and it's a way that you can package up your application your dependencies, so for example in .NET, it would be the ASP.NET runtime, it would be your NuGet packages and your actual built source code, and you can package it up into a container. This is um, a container image. You can then upload this into your favorite cloud platform, so Azure or EC2, and then have that running in a very isolated, sandboxed environment. A single virtual machine can have multiple containers running, but the actual container on the inside is it acts like its own machine, it acts very isolated, it's got its own IP address, but you get much more utilization of the actual host machine because it can run these in parallel and across, um, across the actual, take full advantage of the actual machine. And the key there is that it's not a full-blown OS virtual machine, it's lightweight, it sits on top of the OS. Completely, and it's, because it's not a full virtual machine, you don't have the overhead. When you bring up a virtual machine, not only do you have to wait for it to boot, but while it's sitting there idle, it's also eating RAM. It's taking at least two gig, potentially four, potentially eight. And so you're actually limiting how many of these you can run on a single instance. With a container, it's actually just part of the OS. It's part of the kernel. So there is no boot-up time. It's instant. And there's no overhead. There's no additional memory allocation. It's just a separate sandbox isolation in part of the OS. What I appreciate from talking to you about this today was... Uh but it, it, you can think of it like a process having that level of protection, but m the configuration ability of the OS itself, like you have so much control, at, that you would have at the OS level, right? Yeah, and from all intents and purposes, it looks and it behaves as its own operating system from the applications run on it. So if you're running something like a Redis or Elasticsearch, it's not concerned that it's running inside a container. It just runs as it does. But from an infrastructure and from a deployment time, you can manage it definitely. You can configure it as you need to. And so you get this power and this flexibility. And while it's only Linux at the moment, it is coming to the Microsoft space. And then we have seen announcement from Microsoft kind of pushing towards this container-based deployment approach. I think this is a big theme around DevOps in the Microsoft space is that there's an off, you know, this DevOps movement started in the open source world. And the tooling that is known and been successful, the Docker, Chefs, and Puppets, of the world, they all come from the open source arena, and they're sort of coming to Windows and coming to .NET. At the same time, Microsoft is building a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I don't know if they have a plan. I mean, I think we've all hung around Microsoft to know that often they don't have a plan, mm. but uh, I don't, has anybody played with like System Center Operations Manager, their APM tools, or... Any of those sorts of things? Well, I've written a few PowerShell scripts that interact with those things. Right. And I was going to say this, this philosophy that's uh, popular on the Microsoft platform right now of building small, specialized tools that do one thing well and then compose them together also comes from the Unix, Unix idea. Right. Uh, and it's very flourishing right now, but it actually started in 2006 with PowerShell. Because mm -hmm. PowerShell as a language and as a scripting environment was very much inspired by the Unix shell, like the bash, uh, where you can pipe commands together and every yep. command does one thing well. So it's nice to see how those paradigms that have been taken for granted 
by the Unix community are now coming into the Microsoft sphere and uh, are also as appreciated as they've always been. So, Peter? So, um, at Just Eat, we, we don't actually look at a lot of the Microsoft tooling because one of the decisions we made quite early on is we're going to be running inside of the AWS cloud on top right. of EC2 and instances will come and go ephemerally. This means that we'd have quite a lot of work to do to enable Active Directory to work there. And we decided that we could do without that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we're running SQL Server mirrored as opposed to replicating. Right, because um, replicating requires AD. Requires net Windows network load balancing, requires an AD. Right. Mm -hmm. We're not running System Center uh, SCOM. Right. Because, again, I, well, I don't know too much about it because we didn't look too deeply into it. Yes. But the, the thinking at the time was it requires an AD. We don't have one of those. We're not going to create one of those. Next. And because all of our instances are, as I mentioned, pool deployment, and all of them are running in auto-scaling groups, we're not managing servers. We're, not man we're, we're managing clusters. We don't care about individual, individual servers right. because they're all the same. They just have a, a different number. Is there such a thing as an AD mapper or an AD uh, adapter? There is recently. AWS released something like that. But we don't, if, if we introduce AD, then every time a node goes away, we're going to have to notice that and compensate in AD for this. I'm, I'm not an AD No, I, get, person, I totally get that point. It's not just that we don't have the AD. It's that having that extra dependency exactly. uh, holds us back. Yeah, so we didn't go there. Yeah, the yeah. line, the line I, I like lately is uh, servers are not pets, they're cattle. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and so every so often, you got to make burgers. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, Active Directory creates this sense of petdom for yeah. machines, right? That they, you put an entry, it gets propagated, you know, it's part of a security profile and so forth, which means it's that much harder to destroy them and create new ones. Just some additional overhead. Plus, it, it adds, I believe, a reboot during the provisioning cycle. Mm -hmm. AWS gives you Windows instances, but it requires them to reboot before you get your hands on them because of license key management. Right. Adding them to a domain, I believe, would require another reboot because the host name needs to change and some other gunk needs to happen. And so that means that we'd be extending the launch to starting bootstrap time by a minute or so. Mm -hmm. It's already about 8 to 12 minutes, it varies. And then we have our bootstrapping stuff that has to happen before we're ready, ready for business. And so having a, a lead time, you know, it's, it's, it, it sounds petty to complain about the fact that I get a new server ready to go in 12 minutes or so compared <laughs> yeah. to, yes, I'd like a new server. Yeah, that'll be two weeks. Yeah, great. Yeah, thank you. you know, but the other when, when you're scaling for load, you, you need it, not in 12 minutes, you needed it five yeah. minutes ago. Yeah. Yes. And the other thing that's more pet-like about AD is that they never go away. Like, pets never go away. <laughs> they, you, they tend to attract more pets. <laughs> I was going to say, this, uh, this philosophy of um, having virtual machines and having infrastructure as disposable, as provisionable, as, as needed, and uh, much as easily thrown away, it's kind of a Yoda-esque uh, philosophy. As Yoda says, train yourself 
to let go what you have feared the most of losing. Right? So, and the same trend that we are seeing in, in, in the programming world, where this idea of making microservices that are small enough that throwing them away uh, is not a big problem, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of being, building big monolithic systems that become like pets, because yeah. they spent so many years developing them, you focus on making a small thing, and if it doesn't work, if you find a better way of doing it, just throw the old one away and make a new one. So that's, and also a point where the developers and operations kind of come to the same conclusion that it's better to just not invest so much time and throw away and build new instead of investing so much time on, you know, in one system or in one piece of infrastructure. Jeff, you've been very polite and very quiet, but I know you have something to add here. <laughs> I do. Well, on the point about the whole Azure, or I'm sorry, Active Directory being something that's kind of expensive, I think that what you end up finding is that when you have Active Directory, it very explicitly manages things like a tree, right? And so you've got very explicit lines drawn between all of your servers, and they're all going to live in a very you know, long-lived lifetime, whereas the, the topology that you're describing, Pete, is more of a, a mesh, you know, that can kind of grow and adapt as needed for your infrastructure, which is what consumer-based web apps require today. And mm -hmm. so I think that that's why ditching Active Directory there is a pretty smart choice. Mm -hmm. no, we never had it in the first place, to yeah. ditch. <laughs> exactly. We're taking it all <laughs> the time. Yeah. yeah. And at Microsoft, just as 2012 R2 has come along, they finally brought OAuth and, and AD together. I just don't know that it matters now that they've solved that. Unless you have a deep commitment to a set of uh, AD already and, and you just want to be able to expose it publicly without going nuts. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the OAuth stuff in, in Active Directory is really more about application development because if you want to be able to expose you know, an application for your enterprise users <laughs> that still needs to require your Active Directory security that you use inside the corporate firewall, right. then that becomes a great way to do it without, you know, in a, in a web-friendly manner. But for the DevOps side and running your servers, it's, it, I don't know if it makes that much of a point. Oh, yeah. We, we still make calls to our corporate AD to, do, to authenticate users. Right. But our actual production infrastructure does not have Doesn't use it. its own AD. Well, and it's all well and fine to create this transient model. I think we all buy into that. Right up until you need to keep stuff like data. Mm. That seems to be the one machine that's still a pet. Because I just can't, make, I can't kill a database and start it up again and have good results. People are unhappy because, you know, all the records are gone. <laughs> Are those important? Yeah, it's funny how that, how that works. And Enrico, we did a show earlier today with yeah. you. We were talking a bit about managing databases in a more DevOps-y way. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the data part. In, in the word database, not so much the base, but the data is the key point that's holding everything back from throwing it away. Right. Yeah. So all the world is um, grouping around this idea of, yeah, let's just throw away and provision something new. But the data, you must keep it. However, there are some ways you can, it, it's scary though, but you can, if you're keeping your data redundant in multiple places, then you can actually throw away one storage point and know that you are, the same data is also stored somewhere else. And one example could be, for example, if you have an application that benefits from an event sourcing architecture, if you're that lucky, that is actually feasible and um, warranted to do that, uh, you could actually have everything that's meaningful for your system as an event and persist those events, for example, in a persistent queue somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Then if something happens to this persistent storage in the database, you can just pick those events up that are missing and replay them on a new database. So, you know, redundancy. 
So there are ways around it, but it requires some, some thought and it requires some architecture, I think, beforehand. That's almost like a, uh, a transaction log replay backup type exactly. of thing. It's, but it's, at the application level, right. instead of down on our, yeah. our When it was a place we got to in the conversation of the previous show where, and, it, and we've seen this pattern over and over again, a few shows we've talked about using NoSQL and relational stores together, where the NoSQL part is the very fast, just take the object as it is, as you've collected the data from the customer, and store it. Let the customer go, so their experience is as fast as possible, and then it's some time later, and I'm really thinking in milliseconds, we decompose that data into a relational store. But I think, you know, you took this idea further, Enrico, when you're saying that's now the permanent store, that is the journal of everything that happens. Those objects may change as we update the application, so you'll have, you know, a six-month window of this style of object, and then another six months with a different style of object as those things evolve, but the relational stores now can always recompose the data. They can make it into what you want. So they can be more transient. You don't care anymore because you have one source of the truth and it's the original stored object. Exactly. Although there is still a cultural thing of it's hard to let go of the database. Yeah. Of yeah. the relational model. Yeah. It feels very safe. Well, it's also great tooling around it. I mean, I've yeah. been a relational database guy for a really long time. And when it comes to reporting, we're all pretty happy with that. It doesn't take very long trying to write code around MongoDB to do aggregations before you're like, you know what I miss? SQL. <laughs> uh, should we talk a little on the tooling side? I mean, we certainly mentioned Docker and a few other things, but although the, most of this audience, I think, is development audience, fans. Hands on a radio show. Yeah, I think everybody put up their hand. They're, yep. they're developers. <laughs> right. And I think a lot of the conversation when you talk about DevOps with developers has to do with getting to that sort of continuous integration, continuous delivery, continuous deployment model. Uh, what's you, Jeff, why don't you start off? What's your tool stack to get to really building out code quickly to get to deployment? Um, well, it, especially when I'm doing .NET-based development, um, I tend to go with, like, Team City for a build server mm -hmm. um, because it's very flexible and fast, and then uh, Octopus Deploy for continuous delivery mm -hmm. um, because the two work really well together. Um, and I found that Octopus Deploy really kind of answered a need I had, a real pain I had as a developer <laughs> trying to get stuff pr you know out into production, where it kind of took this concept of hey, let's package things up, let's build them once and deploy the same thing in all the different environments and that becomes a really key part to the sort of trust relationship you have to have in sort of this DevOps relationship where ops has to trust that the things that we're going to push to production are going to work exactly the same way they did when they were verified in QA right so that repeatability becomes key in continuous delivery which is you know kind of one of the biggest parts of DevOps and I think one of the challenges when you talk about Octus deploy and talk about a this is why I led with this idea of a dev centric change to our our DevOps strategy is you do have to put a piece of software on every server mm -hmm. to use Octopus properly. Yes. And that means you've got to talk to the ops guys about it. Yep. And I've found consistently, especially when I was the ops guy, I don't like putting software on servers. Nope. It makes me sad. So this is a, this is a problem that we solve at, at Just Eat with a combination of, of automation and changing the culture. I realize we talk, started talking about tools, but I think a cultural point is important. Sure. At this point at Just Eat, you're on call for the code that you ship. So you put it in production and you're operating it. There, you is, no, are, you, there is no separate ops team. Right. There's a platform as a service team or pair of teams that looks after the infrastructural services like monitoring and deployment and 
that stuff, the glue. But you, in a, in a small team, you own a certain small number of components. You own the source control. You are pushing code to those components. You are on the hook for that in production. Mm -hmm. You, within the team, arrange your own rotor for who's going to take the pager. Right. And, yeah, you're, you're on the... Let's line. You, from you get to run what you want in production because you're... Because you're responsible yep. for it. That's Cockcroft's line from Netflix. Says when we started calling developers at 3 a.m. for outages, yep. we had a lot fewer outages. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yep. But the, the corollary to that is tooling. It doesn't work without real-time monitoring. Because right. if you don't know that something's gone wrong because you're continuously pushing out code, then you're continuously pushing out code that might be wrong. Yes. And you won't know about it until a customer tells you, which yes. is something you want to avoid. So yeah, the, the, the downside of continuous <coughs> delivery is you can continuously deliver failure. Yeah. Yes. So one of, the, one of the best things we introduced was, before we went to the cloud, uh, was, uh, was StatsD and Graphite. StatsD is a little Node.js daemon that Etsy wrote. It's tiny. It listens on a UDP port, and you send it messages. These are metrics. Uh, you get counters, you get gauges, you get timers, and you get something else. We don't use the something else. Um, and then it sits there and every 10 seconds by default pushes that to Graphite, which is a charting engine over the top of a time series data store. So at this point, we've got, within 10 seconds, a new data point on a chart which we alert off of. Not the chart, the, the data, obviously. Um, so at this point, the developers are highly encouraged to write tests that run in production, checks, alerts, that assert happiness, green, that something is not on fire. And so this is the thing that, that was the first step change in our, in our ability to ship code confidently fast in production. We started in production and figured out what, to, what do we need to do this there, because that's the bit that counts, right. and then worked back the, the coverage down to QA, and then six months later went to the, went to the cloud, and that also accelerated us. Nice. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. <laughs> you guessed it. Time to take our beloved Fluffy, the 20-year-old family AD server, to the vet and send him to the cloud. <laughs> he's just going up to live on a farm. Uh, he's going to that great cat pasture in the sky. <laughs> A great it's DNS server in the sky. Yeah, it's a, I just couldn't let that one go. It's actually yeah. time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Michael Mastromarino. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations, Michael. Congratulations. Michael was picked at random from the many members of the .NET Rocks fan club to win the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress today. A big pile of awesome from DevExpress. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com. You click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, 
In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. Indeed we do. A geek shopping spree <laughs> to one lucky member. But you've got to sign up to win. You just have to ask James Meyer. He's our latest winner. That's right. So uh, shall we go through this? If you guys, uh, any of you have an idea of what you would buy with $5,000? I mean, we kind of asked Ben and, and, and Enrico on their shows That's earlier. Right. About the Maybe past we should month. focus on Peter and I Jeff. I think Peter and Jeff. If you had five grand to spend on gadgets, Peter, what would you get? Probably a new laptop for home. Uh, so we just moved into a new Boring. house. <laughs> just moved into Sorry. a new house. There is no entertainment system. Uh-oh. So that's necessary. Okay. Yeah. More computers. Are you more a Mac guy, or do you want a Delosaurus? Or? I'm in a .NET DevOps uh, podcast. I'm a Mac guy. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> I just saw, by the way, I just saw Dell has a 27-inch... 4K monitor for about $700. Yeah. Not bad. And with a 100 millimeter visa mount, you could stick the nuck right on the back of it. <laughs> yes, right. You could. <laughs> Jeff, five I'm grand. Probably, uh, I'm also a Mac guy, so I would probably go for a MacBook Pro and a couple of big Thunderbolt displays. Right. I mean, it sort of speaks to how expensive Apple gear is. is Given yeah. the chance 5000 bucks, I could at least buy a Mac now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did I go there? Okay. And nobody said Mac Pro because you can't get one for five, five grand. Yeah, you can buy the power supply. You can buy the power supply, right? A picture of one. Five K iMac probably costs around maybe yeah. three thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's up there. It depends on what drives and memory you put into it too. You could easily blow out a five grand on, oh. on a Mac if you try hard. I do appreciate that Apple's making a five K monitor rather than a four K monitor. Yeah. You know, they they came up with a twenty five sixty by sixteen hundred display like. Pushing the envelope all the way along. It's not that I would buy their stuff. I just know where the high water mark is, so I can get other stuff. Right. Do you guys have wish lists? Things that you wish either the tools did, or the company did, or you know things that you wish would happen? I uh, I wish that I would not see job postings for companies that are trying to hire a DevOps engineer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that. that that to me signals a company who. <laughs> Their, their heart's in the right place because they want DevOps, a thing that they heard about, and they say, ah, oh, we need to install DevOps. Um, <laughs> yes. But it's like it comes in a squirt bottle. Exactly. If I spray it on the developers, yeah. you know, they'll go faster. I think that, Does Chocolate you know, do that yet? Yeah. Choco install DevOps? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> those companies need to understand that what they're looking for, just like there was sort of the agile revolution yes. over the last yeah. 10 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. Agile used to come in a squirt bottle, too. Yeah. Yeah. So they finally this. figured out that I'll, you would... I'll tell you what I want. Um, I want Windows to not use backslash as a path separator. <laughs> Too late no. for that. Too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want Windows to, to standardize on a line ending that is not CRLF. LF. And I want Max to get rid of that little clover button, which we don't know what the hell it does. <laughs> <laughs> Just as long as we're, sure, yeah, we're going to go after those things. Just if, I can, if I can play Devil's Advocate uh, about this DevOps thing, right. <laughs> I also do agree that DevOps is not a job description. <clears throat> However, when I start hearing about DevOps, I, had, I got one picture in my head, and I imagine the DevOps to be the, the guy or the girl in the team that takes on the role of going to talk to, to operations right. and be kind of the bridge between the two They're teams. They're the ones that put on the fireproof suit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I had this idea. So DevOps, it's devs and ops. So it's a person who is in both camps and kind of you know, mediates between the two teams. That's what I thought it was. And I actually 
wanted to take that role because I was always for automation and scripting stuff. And I'm a programmer, so I can right. I can do that. I can be I can be the person. Shouldn't they all talk together though? Maybe. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's the point. Yeah, it's yeah. actually crazy about talk, Mr. Yeah. Franklin. Maybe yeah. the DevOps guy should be a chef. Right. You know? yeah. Somebody who makes food for everybody. He doesn't really, he just needs to yeah. own a, operate a microwave because pizza's enough, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's not complicated food. And, yeah. see, and I think that's the point that we'll eventually reach. Just like with Agile, people figured out we don't need to go hire Agile people. We have PMs that just need to learn Agile processes yes, right. and already have all that wonderful context of our <laughs> business. Yeah. Right? Businesses. Domain knowledge is what's valuable. What we really need here is just like we have agile coaches, we need to bring in a DevOps coach right. to be that mediator for three or six months and yep. teach the teams yep. how to work together, how to trust each other, and yep. where not to trust each I, other. Yeah, right. I see it slightly differently. I, I would like um, the job description to have a, li a bullet item on it that says operating in production. Because as the way I see it, it's your code can be wonderful in your IDE and it can work in QA, until it's in front of a customer, it's not real. No. It's inventory. It's well, and, it, and I like and this. So, I appreciate that EB so has addressed it that way. Operating in production means it tells you that it's healthy. Right. It, it continuously emits that it's healthy because otherwise, you know, how do you know right now? Quick show of hands. I, I did this in the alerts lightning talk. Quick show of hands. Who, who cares that their code is operating right now in production around the audience? Who knows? That's mostly everybody. That's not mostly not, everybody yeah. now. Three people. So that's, yeah. that's really what you get with operating your code in production. You don't necessarily need a separate ops team for that. Mm. It's a different set of skills that you probably want anyway. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that you, you, get a lot of, you get a lot of job satisfaction from, having no, from knowing that you've done a good job because it's not come back out of production. And I completely agree. I think this is something which is kind of lacking in the .NET space. We don't really... Monitoring just seems to be something which is forgot. Like, once right. it's in production, it's like, yay! Like, have, we have can we're done. Have, we're you done. have you ever implemented performance counters? Well, this is really a good hard. Reason, yes. <laughs> we, the .NET story around performance counters and event log, logging hasn't been great. But nope. this is why we shouldn't just be looking at Microsoft yep. for inspiration. Like, Logstash and Elasticsearch are amazing technologies. Yep. And they're free and they're open and they're yes. available. Heck, Signal R will get you out and talking to somebody else, what you do with it from there, you know. Yeah, so I think we just need, like, that's what I'd like to see a lot more of, is more dashboards, more visibility, more like charting you, to show you know, what you're doing. Microsoft put this in the box. How many folks are running Studio 2012? How about 2013? Uh, well, all right, how many is that? I'm just saying, between 2012 and 2013, you got like 80% of the room. Yeah. How many people here are using the preemptive analytics tools that are in the box in studio? Zero, Zero. hands. Wow. All right. So just for the record, included in every copy of studio, it's really from 2010 on, but for 2012, 2013, it's even better. These are the guys who make the Dockfiscator tools, which is why you never installed them. Under that is a thing called runtime analytics, and it will actually instrument down to the method level in production. You don't have to deploy anything onto the server because it interleaves into your IL, so it just deploys with the project, and it will give you real-time monitoring of what's happening and in it, your app. And it claims to not impact performance. And I, that's been I've my experience, it. too. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've tested it right to the wire, you know, slamming an IIS server as hard as I could, and I've seen preemptive analytics shut itself down rather than impact performance. Yeah. But, and it will report errors in production directly back to TFS if you ask it to. We don't have TFS. 
And if you don't have TFS, it'll, it'll just call it'll to an API. Web right, service right? or API. And, and the one that's in the box is a limited edition. There is a retail version of it when you want the full thing. You know, just, and it's not the only product out there. I mentioned preemptive because you guys all already have it. Right? That, that's the joke. There's, there's production instrumentation included with Studio, and we just don't use it. So if you us, want to go buy something else, it's New Relic or App Dynamics. There's a bunch of them. So for us, writing a string to a UDP socket to an IP address is a fire and forget. Yeah, pretty much instant, instantaneous app. Yeah, <laughs> thing. It's easy. Yep. String is this format. Open up a UDP socket. Push. I, I don't. I don't deny that the coding part is easy. The discipline to insert it in all the right places so that you that's, get meaningful data. That's, that's what, harder. That's and what IOC is for. We're all using that at this point. Right. Yep. You can use IOC. You can use uh, the uh, uh, aspect-oriented yep. stuff. Um, but the the real thing here is that, and I've done this before. I've done logging in. That's okay, and that's easy to do. What do you do with that data? How can you make any sense out of it? That's the key. And so I like the tools that I can buy that can analyze and make sense out of that data. You know, if they tell me what to push, I can push it all day long, and I can get stuff out of my app. But so we, how we, do I make sense of it? We tag our logs, so our our logs get pushed to as Ben as Ben describes Logstash, which then pushes to Elasticsearch. Elasticsearch is a a very scalable set of Lucene indexes, I guess yeah. you could call it. Right. Um, very simple HTTP interface. Mm -hmm. There's a visualization tool on the top called Kibana, and that allows you to run arbitrary queries against your Elasticsearch right. database. And it's doable, and, and you certainly can. It's very easy. That's, yeah. that's the difference. Right. So you take your, your text file, you're probably using a logging library. It can write a CSV file. You run an agent to ship the CSV file. You put the columns in that make your, your log events more meaningful. Logstash itself can, can enrich them on the way into Elasticsearch, although we're not doing that. Mm. We haven't needed to. And then Elasticsearch gives you very, very fast queryability over right. that arbitrary data. Yeah. It's, it's shocking when you see it. I think that the, your point about, you know, yeah, you can log, but do you actually do it in ways to make it easier? I think some of that comes back to the, the cultural aspect of DevOps. Like you mentioned about the Netflix guy who said, when we started calling developers when stuff broke at 3 a.m., stuff stopped breaking at 3 a.m. Because all of a sudden, there was a culture put in place from the top down that those developers understood, wait a second, I want to put this logging and instrumentation in so that I can have visibility into when it's broken before the CEO knows it's broken, right? Like, nope. So you don't get woken up at 3 a.m. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I don't care about the CEO knowing exactly. about it. I don't want to get woken up at 3 a.m. Exactly. Happily, in my business, I'm not going to get woken up at 3 a.m. because you're probably not hungry at 3 a.m., right. so you're not using my service. <laughs> uh, you have well, hanging around yeah. with speakers this week. Exactly. That's what about time zones? Yeah, time zones. So, yeah, okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> well, I Don't think there's a common theme time coming. Time zones are annoying and just in general. Yes. yes. <laughs> time zones are bad. I think John Skeet built a whole hour-long talk about just how bad time zones are. Uh, yeah. I mean, the one theme I see coming out of this panel so far is the, the open source tooling is where it's at as far as actually making .NET apps uh, run in a, uh, a more rapidly deployable, measurable, manageable state. We're all nodding, yeah. just for the... Yeah, you can all see, yeah. yeah. Nodding on a radio show thing is going really well. Yeah. Apart from one piece, and that's the scripting part. Right. I will say PowerShell, which comes from Microsoft, and it's not open source. Yeah. But it's there, it's built in, it's on every machine, and that's actually, I'm going to say something controversial here, 
it's a very good scripting language. Mm -hmm. And I Sorry. know people complain about readability, you know, it's hard to read, it's verbose, but at least it's a very consistent syntax. You know, every command is invoked in the same way, all parameters are passed in the same way. It's not like in a Unix world, it could be dash, double dash, triple dash, slash, slash space, no space, <laughs> semicolon. You have to look it up. In PowerShell, it's consistent because it's convention-based. Yeah. And the proof that PowerShell really is a good scripting language to work with if you're on, on the Windows platform is that Octopus Deploy, for example, is built around PowerShell. Mm -hmm. Octopus yeah. Deploy is adding value on top of PowerShell, but it also lets you drop down to it and write custom scripts whenever you need it. Take control of what's happening and do something else, something maybe it's not super out of the box. So PowerShell is something that's closed source and proprietary, but still, I argue it's better than for example, using something like Ruby, which I've seen. Uh, sure, the, the chef approach, or the yeah, yeah the chef yeah. approach to things. Or teams building, uh, writing build scripts for a .NET app in Ruby, in Rake. Mm -hmm. So actually, okay. at Just Eat, we write all of our systems, build, deploy, and test automation pretty much in Ruby. There Partly you go. because yeah. you can't then cheat by linking the library that is under test and poking data at it. Yeah. Partly because it's an it's a different language, so you're, you're forced to think slightly differently, which is healthy as a developer, yeah. as an engineer, I should yeah. say. Um, but so, it, so is PowerShell. It's very different. Yes, but it's also not cross-platform. Yes. And yeah, I'm talking about if you are on the Windows platform, right. we, then we are, PowerShell is the, the best choice. You so we are, we are totally invested yeah. in the Windows platform at the moment. We just happen to treat it as a dependency as opposed to a... Okay. Can, sure, can sure. I ask you each to answer the following question or finish the following sentence? I wish Microsoft would uh, promote more open source software to their community and actually do the software already exists. I think they can do better to support and actually promote the tools and use their reach and their platform to highlight alternative approaches instead of it just being what they promote. Okay. They are getting better at that, though. Oh, completely. The new Microsoft is a very different one to what we thought one, two, three years ago. Yeah. And so they, they are doing it. I think they're still along more. I think that's very good in the ASP.NET team and what Scott Gustwith doing. Yes. I still think the rest of Microsoft can take some inspiration from his sure. lead mm. and um, see the advantages what that brings to the rest of the world. Yeah. That's a great thought, Ben. Peter? Remove the registry. <laughs> oh. Wow, yeah, you can applaud that. And backslash and all live without a registry. Goodness I, I, I want to see a text file that when I change it, the service restarts and my, my, my configuration is Bring back yeah. system.ini, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, I sometimes wonder why they even need it. Mm -hmm. I don't want a central point of contention that I nope. have to monitor to figure out what the Yeah, yeah that's sort of voodoo, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. There's so much in Reg that's, you know, and Reg edited uh, the best description I've ever heard of it is doing brain surgery on yourself with a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yep. you'll, yeah. you'll find out when you're wrong, you just won't be able to do anything about it. <laughs> exactly. Jeff. Um, I wish that Microsoft would, and this might be on the horizon now that .NET is open source, I wish that they would unify .NET and Mono into one thing that is completely run by the .NET team so that, you know, the kind of any differences between them would go away. And again, Windows as a dependency 
becomes more of just a dependency and not even a dependency. Like I could still use C Sharp and Microsoft development tools yeah. and very simply deploy my code onto a Unix-based server just as much as I would a Windows-based server. Yep. So I have more choices. It does seem like the announcements that came out in early November yeah. pointed to that. They didn't say it explicitly, but yeah. it's clearly by making the core open source and Miguel Diacaz is on the table, uh, one on the could stage. Speculate. One right. could speculate with so, those guys all together. It's like you're good, they're going to straighten this that out. Might be be, that'd be a happy thing. Yeah, that'd be a wonderful thing. All right, Enrico. What do you wish? Well, I wish Microsoft would increase the maximum length of paths to extend beyond 256 characters. <laughs> oh, man. That's, 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 why do you need that? Right? Test no, the tilde one doesn't really work. Oh, yeah. Um, awesome. No, seriously, I will actually want a proper shell uh, in Windows. I know it's Something along the lines uh, of Bash is coming uh, in Windows 9, or something ten. that improve the command prompt. 10. Windows 10. Sorry, there, 10. There is no 9. No, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So Windows 10. Uh, but I would really like to have the uh, Unix shell experience on Windows. Yeah. yeah. Also, and enable to do that over a network, like through SSH, and have it built into oh, Windows. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, that, that's, that's, yeah. I, I want to retract right. mine. I want a native yeah. SSH implementation. Yeah. 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 So that's, okay. that's what we really want. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got about five minutes left. Is there any questions from the audience we can add to this conversation before we call it a night? So what is the technology behind Octopus Deploy relates to PowerShell? Like, is it PowerShell remoting? Which I, I think so, right? it is, actually. Actually, well, it's both. Um, by convention, the, the traditional way to use PowerShell in Octopus Deploy is there is a convention-based set of scripts that live inside your project and therefore inside your deployable package called like pre-deploy.ps1, deploy.ps1 that by convention get invoked at certain parts of the deployment. And those are living on the actual machine where the deployment is happening. Um, but there also are remote deployments that happen from the Octopus Deploy server where it does some remote execution of PowerShell scripts. And if I recall from the show we did with Paul Stobel talking about Octopus Deploy, one of the things he said was that PowerShell remoting was just not powerful enough for everything you need exactly. to do, which is why they have that chunk of code sitting yeah. on every server. It's exactly. In order to get it to actually do everything you need it to do. So mm -hmm. it's still not as clean as it ought to be. Right. Another question from the audience? Anyone? Just want add one something to this uh, discussion yeah, about yes. PowerShell remoting. Also, PowerShell remote in order to work well requires both ends of the communication to be on uh, the same domain control, on the uh, same Active Directory. Yeah, they don't have to be, but if if they are not, it becomes a, a real pain. If they are, then connecting with an identity to another machine becomes much easier because it goes to the domain control. There's also a bunch of group policy rules that come into play there exactly. too. Exactly. So, yeah. so that's we, why it's, yeah. We have some PowerShell remoting that doesn't require a domain. That's how we build our AMIs right. increasingly. Uh, we use a thing called Ansible, which is a configuration management tool, which is a, we basically use that as a build script for our server baseline images. Um, the thing that that relies on is when we boot an AMI in, app, in Amazon to do the baking, not running in production, but just to prepare the machine, uh, the first thing we have to run is the PowerShell bootstrap script from the Ansible repository that somebody called Trondhindinis created, which allows you to log in with PowerShell remoting without it being on a domain right. over, over the 5986 port, which is um, TLS, I think. Which is coming back to the same issue, which is that the, this active directory mentality that a lot of these tools are depending on for certain things impairs stuff. It yep. doesn't yep. make life simpler. Mm. 
And, uh, ultimately, you know, AD sort of on. I feel like it's on his last legs. It's not morphing with everything else that's morphing, which makes me think Microsoft's not talking about it. But clearly, there's change in the works for AD. We hope. One last question. Anyone? Come on. Don't be shy. Yep. Uh, in How many employees adjusted? Globally, I think around 1,200. In the engineering teams, I think around 150 at this point, with around 100 focused on the UK, which is our largest operation, and the other 50 focused uh, uh, across delivery through the other markets that we operate in. So enough that they can't sit around a table and talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting measure of, you know, when people can actually hear each other, you know, how, how relationships work differently when it gets too large because much more challenging. Do you have a question, sir? Yeah. So it's... What's the added value of just team? Just, just eat. Just eat. So oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's really about connecting you, the customer, very conveniently to a restaurant. Um, and then we manage the process of, you know, you don't, you don't have to find a menu because currently, or maybe recently you can, but you weren't able to find menus online except through us and some competitors of ours, which I won't talk about. <laughs> um, and then you don't have to call the restaurant, so you don't have to, you know, I, I'd like item number 57, or I'd like the, the you know, and the, the conversation gets garbled, or, you know, you, you get a, a dish that has nuts and you're allergic and, you, you know, that didn't come across and then you don't have to, we've got your back, basically, through the transaction. So you that's, make a consistent ordering experience exactly. across all these restaurants. Exactly. Yeah, it's good for restaurants, too, who don't yeah. have the resources to put up their own website and do their own ordering and yeah. all that. We are another sales channel for them. Right. And, sure. that's, and we find that the, the order value when someone's paying online is higher than walk-ins and, and phone orders. And so it, it makes financial sense for them to Great. be on our platform. And certainly my experience working in the e-commerce space is the faster and cleaner I made the site, the more people bought and the more they bought when exactly. they bought. We have so many um, opportunities to upsell during the ordering process and sure. we make the and most of it. those. Yeah. Yeah. All right, a question here, sir. Are any of the panel doing dev QA sec ops? Yep. And like InfoSec guys as well. So we have, we right. have, the, we have the InfoSec guys plugged into our centralized monitoring and our centralized logging. And so, for example, if they notice that somebody has opened up RDP to our servers in production to do some tinkering on a box, that's kind of frowned upon, and so they get an alert. It's, you know, if you have to go to a box, you have to go to a box to, to read whatever's there. Or, but typically, we ship everything away from the boxes, so why are you there? So there's a, an alert that happens to their hip chat channel. They investigate. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point. You don't want to be dealing with the boxes. Like, yeah, they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Like you said before, it's all about them being cattle. Right. If you're logging into a box, there's you're something doing it, wrong. You're doing it wrong. Yeah, you're already yeah. doing it wrong. Yeah. Those, those things should be locked down, especially for the production servers. When you're figuring out tests in other environment, it's one of the things I found. The way you get away from infosec as an obstacle to productivity is because everything's so dynamic, because you can stand up instances and explore with them, they can work in their own sand sandbox to do pen testing and, and, and explore systems because they know that if I test it in an environment that looks like production, I'm going to get the same results as if I did test in production yeah. rather than needing to test in production because I don't trust that you're actually going to be able to reproduce the environment. It's, it's exactly the same pattern as breaking down the traditional silo between dev and ops. Right. The ops give dev 
access to their monitoring, to their logs, and then the devs go look. Yeah, SecOps and actually take a look. exactly the same thing. Right. There's a set of events that you're interested in. I'm going to start publishing them because otherwise you're going to keep coming to me. If it's not there, then it needs to go there. And at that point, you can self-service. Yeah. It's making the computer do the work. Mm -hmm. like We're it. all software developers. That's, that's really what it boils down to. Well, we are inherently lazy, so we'd rather let other people do it. Peter, I'm afraid that's the last word. Let's give a round of applause for our panel. Ben Hall, Peter Mounts, Jeff French, and Enrico Capodaglio. Michael Franklin's Rich Campbell. See you next time on .NET Rocks! .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a